Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Last week, we began to look at the early Christian Greek-speaking theologian named Irenaeus of Lyon, probably the most important uh, early Christian Greek-speaking theologian of his day. He was born in the city of Smyrna, now Izmir, in modern Turkey, and was mentored by Polycarp of Smyrna, who had known the Apostle John. And thus, Irenaeus was a very, very important link to the apostolic era. He's remembered mostly for his massive uh, Against Heresies, a work of five volumes written written originally in Greek. Uh, We only have a complete Latin copy. We have fragments in Greek, fragments in uh, Syriac and Armenian. Um, And this work was a refutation of a heresy called Gnosticism, written in the 180s. Um, the heresy by this point in time had been around for probably close to a hundred years or more. Um, we see it in uh, evidence in First John, where the Apostle John uh, refutes those who deny the incarnation. Second John, the same idea, and then also in the pastoral epistles, where Paul is wrestling with a very early form of what would become full-blown Gnosticism in the second century. In general, against heresies follows a logical order. Irenaeus spends the first book of Against Heresies describing the various Gnostic groups of his day, uh, many of which he had personal encounters with. For instance, while uh, during a sojourn in Rome uh, in the 150s, uh, Irenaeus probably met or encountered two key heretics of his day, Valentinus, a major uh, Gnostic figure, and Marcion. Book two of the, the work stresses the absurdity of these various groups. What is especially valuable about these two, sec- these two sections of Against Heresies is that Irenaeus quotes a significant amount of Gnostic literature, which up until 1945, when a large cache of Gnostic manuscripts were discovered at Nagamadi in the Egyptian desert, Irenaeus' work was a main source for scholars of Gnostic views and beliefs. Essentially, the Nagamadi discovery corroborated the reports made by Irenaeus and other Orthodox teachers like Justin Martyr, like Origen, like Tertullian, about the various teachings of Gnosticism. Irenaeus' intent in these first two books is to acquaint his readers with the deceitfulness of Gnosticism, which outwardly appears to be Christian, since the terms and expressions that it uses resemble those used by genuine believers. This aberrant theology was, in Irenaeus' words, craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Irenaeus thus compared his task to that of a jeweler testing and exposing counterfeit emeralds that have been cleverly made from colored glass. In Book 3, Irenaeus tackles the question of theological authority and establishes the basis of Christian doctrine as scripture and teaching in accord with God's word. He goes on to detail what scripture teaches about the nature of God's unity. The Gnostics sought to drive a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he defends the plan also in this book of redemption, 
uh, through the incarnate Son of God. Book four is especially aimed at Marcion, who had whittled canonical scripture down to the Gospel of Luke. Um, he actually argued that the first two chapters uh, were not part of the original Gospel. He began really at the beginning of Christ's public ministry, and also included in his canon uh, simply ten of Paul's letters. He excluded the pastoral epistles, which is not surprising in view of their heavy anti-Gnostic content. Irenaeus seeks to refute him by stressing the unity of the Old and New Testaments. And obviously this book is a very important book for knowing the issues about canon debate in the church at the end of the second century. The final book, Book 5, has more to say about redemption and outlines Irenaeus' understanding of the goal of history and the world to come. It is utterly vital to note that Irenaeus is first and foremost a pastor, and thus there is absolutely no attempt to produce an innovative theology, nor is he really desirous of originality. Yet it is noteworthy that his Against Heresies is the richest theological work of the second century. In fact, in many respects, the goal that guided his theology is similar to that of Paul. Like the Apostle, his writings cease to foster the spiritual formation of his hearers or readers. Foundational to Irenaeus' refutation of Gnosticism are the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, which, in the view of the pastor of the all, were both the work of the one true God. For Irenaeus, these scriptures are perfect texts because they had been spoken by the Word of God and by His Spirit. The human authors of the various books of scripture had been given perfect knowledge by the Holy Spirit and thus were incapable of proclaiming error. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Irenaeus writes, is the truth and there is no falsehood in him, even as David also said when he prophesied about his birth from a virgin and his resurrection from the dead. Truth has sprung from the earth, a citation of Psalm 85, verse 11. Now the apostles, Irenaeus continued, being disciples of the truth, are free from all falsehood, for falsehood has no fellowship with the truth, just as darkness has no fellowship with the light, but the presence of the one drives away the other. Here, Ines bases the fidelity of the apostolic writings upon the absolute truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as it is impossible to conceive of Christ ever uttering falsehood, so the writings of his authorized representatives are incapable of error. This quality of absolute truthfulness can also be predicated of the authors of the books of the Old Testament, since the Spirit who spoke through the apostles also spoke through the Old Testament saints. Thus, the scriptures form a harmonious whole. All scripture, Irenaeus could say, which has been given to us by God, shall be found to be perfectly consistent, and through the many diversified utterances of scripture, there shall be heard one harmonious melody in us, praising in hymns that God who created all things. So due to their perfection, fidelity to the truth and harmony, the scriptures are to be the normative source for the teaching of the Christian community. These remarks were foundational to the rebuttal of the various Gnostic systems, which argued that the scriptures had been falsified, and that even the apostles at times had erred in their teachings. And given the Gnostic propensity to fob off their writings, things like the Acts of, of Thomas, uh, the uh, Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, and so on, as genuine revelation, Irenaeus rightly discerned that a discussion of the nature of scripture was vital. Irenaeus is, of course, aware that not everything within scriptures can be adequately explained. He traces this situation back to the finitude of man and his inability to comprehend fully the mysteries of God. Ultimately, such mysteries should be left in the hands of God, so that not only in this world, but also in the one to come, God for sure should forever teach and man should forever learn 
the things taught him by God. But the Gnostics also sought to use scripture to support their views. Who was right in their interpretation? The Gnostics or Irenaeus and those uh, in the church? Irenaeus stressed that the importance of a confessional Christianity in responding to heresies as use of scripture was vital. In Against Heresies, one, book one, chapter 10, section one, for instance, he reproduced an early Christian creed or rule of faith, possibly a statement of, of faith of his local church at Lyon. A rule of faith like this, drawn from scripture, was to function as a hedge to orthodox interpretation. The church, uh, Irenaeus wrote, dispersed throughout the world to the ends of the earth, received from the apostles and the disciples the faith in one God the Father Almighty, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets predicted the dispensations of God, the coming, the birth from the Virgin, the passion, the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension of the beloved Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the flesh into the heavens, and is coming from the heavens in the glory of the Father to recapitulate all things and raise up all flesh of the human race, so that Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the good pleasure of the invisible Father, every knee should bow, of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess him. This confession, or rule of faith, begins by stressing that contrary to Gnosticism's view of the world, there is one God, the Father Almighty, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. Creation is not evil, because it comes from a good God. By describing God the Creator as Father, the statement of faith is also affirming the fact that the God who created all things is also the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gnosticism sought to drive a wedge between the Creator and the Father of the Lord Jesus by asserting that they were two very different beings and that only the latter was the true God. This confession proceeds to state that there is also one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate for our salvation. The incarnation is asserted as vital for salvation. Irenaeus is thus the first to explicitly formulate what would become a cardinal tenet of Christianity. Any part of human nature, body, soul, or spirit, which the Redeemer did not make his own, is not saved. Without a full assumption of humanity, sin accepted, human beings cannot be saved. This Christ who became flesh, the creed goes on to state, suffered and was raised from the dead, ascended in the flesh into the heavens, and will return in a future coming from the heavens in the glory of the Father. Note the texts here that Irenaeus uses to support his understanding of the second advent of Christ. Ephesians 1.10 and Philippians 2, that great Christological hymn of that letter. At that time, he will raise up all flesh of the human race, the wicked to be sent into eternal fire, the righteous to be surrounded with eternal glory. The clear emphasis in this creed on the reality of the Incarnation uh, is vital to note. It should be also noted that Irenaeus is equally firm in regard to the deity of Christ. In this statement of faith, Christ is described as Lord and God and Savior and King. And later in Book 5, Irenaeus encourages all his readers to confess him, that is Christ, as God and hold firmly to him as man, using the proofs drawn from the Scriptures. In this creedal statement, nothing is said about the being of the Holy Spirit beyond the fact that the Church believes in him along with the Father and the Son, and that he spoke through the prophets. In other places in Against Heresies, though, Irenaeus makes it very clear where he stands as to the question about the Spirit's being. In Against Heresies, Book 5, Chapter 12, Sections 1 through 4, Irenaeus is arguing that salvation of the body is the Spirit's work. 
Well, the spirit of man simply has the breath of life, which gives him physical life. The breath of life is created, continues for a period of time, and then ceases. It is temporal. The spirit, on the other hand, gives eternal life. The spirit, by contrast, is peculiar to God and eternal. The contrast that Irenaeus is making here clearly indicates his conviction in the spirit's deity. Irenaeus is also aware this Holy Spirit is involved in creation. The Father, by his word and spirit, makes, disposes, and governs all things and commands all things into existence. But the word and the spirit cannot be regarded as less than God, for Irenaeus is regularly asserting that there is only one creator who is God. What does this then say about the Holy Spirit? He can only be regarded as a fully divine being. Irenaeus thus employs this creedal statement to state what is essential Christian belief that a person must hold in order to be saved. Moreover, Irenaeus never tires of stressing the fact that this faith is held by the church wherever it is found. In the church, there is one in the same faith, one in the same doctrine, and one in the same way of salvation. This unity pertains, Irenaeus stresses, to the essentials of the faith. During the 190s, uh, as was mentioned last week, Irenaeus was critical of the Bishop of Rome, Victor, for his unwillingness to tolerate differences between churches uh, and the celebration of Easter, both regard to when it was celebrated and how. Victor was prepared to excommunicate anyone who did not agree with his perspective. Irenaeus significantly disagreed with this. For Irenaeus, when there was no danger to the essentials of the faith, he longed to see mutual tolerance and the acceptance of different customs. The Gnostics, though, erred in these essentials, and thus they misread Scripture. They had to be corrected, therefore, by the teaching of the Scriptures, interpreted in accordance with the rule of faith, and the Church had to be safeguarded by creedal statements like the one that we have just cited. Irenaeus knew of one other way of reaching the Gnostics, beyond theological argument, citation of the Scriptures, and appeal to the rule of faith. And that was by prayer. At the end of Book 3, he has a prayer. It well reveals his pastoral heart and is an excellent way to wrap up this week and last week's brief look at his life, his battles, and his book against heresies. He prays this. We do indeed pray that these men not remain in the pit that they have dug for themselves, but that being genuinely begotten, they might be converted to the church of God and that Christ may be formed in them, and that they may know the builder and maker of this universe, the only true God and Lord of all things. We pray for these things on their behalf, loving them better than they seem to love themselves. For our love, since it is true, is healing to them if they will receive it. For it's like a severe remedy that cuts away the unsound and excess flesh of a wound, for it purges their swollen haughtiness. Therefore, we shall not grow weary, striving with all our might, to stretch out our hand to them. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.